I want you to imagine that you have been charged with a crime that you did not commit. The prosecutor has built a strong case against you. Your fingerprints are all over the crime scene. The jury's been informed of what seems to be believable motive. And someone with a personal vendetta has falsely testified against you. There's only one way that you can win your case. You need a rock-solid alibi. You need to prove that it could not have been you by stating the details of what you were doing at the time of the crime. And further, if that alibi is going to be persuasive, you need witnesses that can verify your alibi. And those witnesses need to be trustworthy if they're going to be persuasive. They need to have established testimony separate from your testimony to avoid any possible sense of conspiracy or collusion. You need a detailed, verifiable, trustworthy alibi in order to win your case. But when the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, he was in a similar situation, except rather than being charged with a crime he didn't commit, he was being charged with distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ. False teachers had slipped into the Galatian churches with their own version of the gospel, and in order to bolster their case, they were claiming that Paul, who had first brought the gospel to them, that he was the one who was preaching a false gospel. Specifically, they seemed to be claiming that Paul had first received the gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem and then subsequently changed that gospel to make it more appealing to the Gentiles. He learned it from Peter and James and John, and then he took it to the Gentiles and he started changing it to make it palatable, changing it so he would get more converts. On the surface, that seems believable and persuasive. But Paul knew that this was not really about him. Paul knew that in order for the Galatians to finally be saved, it was his job to convince them that the gospel he preached was the true gospel. And in our passage this morning, we have what Timothy George calls Paul's tightly woven alibi against the false teacher's accusations. You can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. The title of this morning's message is Not Man's Gospel, Part two. In this section of the letter, Paul's making his case to the Galatians that the gospel he preaches is truly from God. A few weeks ago, we saw his first argument in this section that his own radical transformation testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel. His own transformation testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel. He went from being a zealous persecutor of the church to being a zealous preacher of the faith. And the only thing that can account for that transformation is that Jesus Christ personally appeared to him and entrusted him with the gospel. This was Paul's first line of defense against the false teacher's accusations. And this morning we come to Paul's second line of defense. It runs from chapter 1, verse 16, all the way through chapter 2, verse 14. It's one seamless story in response to the accusation that he had distorted the gospel that the apostles preached. What Paul does in these verses is he shows that his relationship with the apostles in Jerusalem actually testifies to the truthfulness of his gospel. Paul's relationship with the apostles in Jerusalem testifies to the truthfulness of Paul's gospel. That's the main point of Paul's writing this morning to show and contrary to what the false teachers are claiming, that his relationship with the apostles is such that the gospel is actually proven to be the genuine thing. 
So as we look at what Paul wrote today, we're going to see three things about that relationship he had with the apostles that show the truthfulness of the gospel he preached. Three things about his relationship. And, and as we do, we're going to also see how that relationship that he had with the apostles informs our own relationships with each other. And how our relationships today also can testify to the truthfulness of the gospel. So we're going to look at Paul's story and Paul's relationship to the apostles, and then we'll make some applications as we go about our relationships, all testifying to the truth of the gospel. And so the first thing we're going to see this morning is Paul's independence from the apostles. Paul's independence from the apostles. We're going to pick up reading in chapter 1, verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So what does Paul do here in order to defend himself against the false teacher's accusations? Well, he gives the Galatians his travel itinerary. Remember, one thing the false teachers were saying was that Paul first learned the Gospels from the apostles in Jerusalem. That was their claim, that he received it from them. So here, Paul is refuting that claim. He's saying, I didn't learn it from them. I learned it and received it from Jesus himself. When Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus road, Paul says in verses 16 and 17, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. So what he means there is when God called him, Paul didn't go to Jerusalem to ask the apostles, can you interpret this vision for me? When God called him, Paul didn't feel the need to go get a preaching license from the Jerusalem church. He knew, he was absolutely convinced that Jesus had appeared to him, and therefore, what did he do? He immediately began preaching the gospel in Arabia and in Damascus. And he says he did this for three years without any contact with the apostles whatsoever. For the first three years of his ministry, Paul and the apostles had no relationship with each other. He was independent. When he finally did go to Jerusalem, he says in verses 18 through 20 that he was only there for 15 days and only saw Peter and James. Specifically, look in verse 18. He says that he went to visit Cephas, that is, Peter. He went to visit Cephas. Now, it's important to understand the nature of that visit. You know, when I was in seminary, uh, I did most of my courses online from here, but a few times I would travel to Louisville for a few days in order to do a modular course. Louisville, Louisville, however you say it, right? Now, when these modular courses came, I went with the mindset of a student ready to sit at the feet of the masters, right? I went, I went ready to learn from Schreiner and Plummer and Ware. I went, I went ready to learn from these guys. But Paul, when he went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, he was not going to take what is the gospel 101 from the Apostle Peter. He didn't go as a student ready to learn from the teacher. No, this word visit literally means to get to know somebody, to get acquainted with somebody. 
He didn't go to Jerusalem to learn gospel doctrine from Peter. He already learned that from Jesus himself. He didn't need to learn anything more from Peter. He went to Jerusalem to establish fellowship with Peter, to establish a relationship with Peter, to cultivate unity with the leader of the original apostles, not to get his stamp of approval for ministry. That's important. The reason he's saying this is he doesn't want to be open to the charge that he went to Jerusalem and learned the gospel from them. He wants them to know, I did go, but it was just for 15 days, and it was just to get to know him. On top of that, I didn't stay long. I was there for 15 days, and I departed so quickly, he says, that even the believers in Judea never even got the chance to meet me in person. He did say, however, that they heard about him. Verse 23, they were only hearing it said. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Over the next 10 years after that visit to Jerusalem, Think about that, 10 years of ministry. Paul was away from Jerusalem, away from the apostles, preaching the gospel in Syria and Cilicia. Over the course of 14 years from his conversion to the next section, save one short visit with Peter in Jerusalem, Paul preached the gospel apart from any involvement from the original apostles. The believers in Jerusalem, they heard about this, they rejoiced in this, but they were not responsible for it. Paul was not their missionary that they sent. Paul was just out there preaching the gospel. God alone was responsible for Paul's ministry. Okay, why does Paul give all these details again? It's easy to get lost in this itinerary. What's going on in this passage? Why does it matter that he went to Arabia and then to Damascus and then to Jerusalem and then to Syria and Cilicia? Why does that matter? Martin Luther sums up the point Paul's making this way. He is proving that he did not have the apostles as teachers anywhere but was himself a teacher everywhere. He did not have the apostles as teachers anywhere, but was himself a teacher everywhere. His gospel ministry was independent from the original apostles, and the reason this is important is because that independence authenticates his claim that the gospel came from God and not from man. That independence authenticates his assertion that he received the gospel from God and not from man. Think about it this way. I need to give a disclaimer here. This is not political. Okay. Probably worried now, right? As you probably know, when COVID-19 first began spreading across the world, there was a discernible ground zero from which that spread began. The disease advanced into the world from a specific time and place. And this, of course, has led to speculation that COVID was cooked up by human scientists somewhere we're not going to get into that today. But what if some evidence emerged that COVID had begun spreading somewhere else with no discernible connections to ground zero? Well, in that case, we'd be more inclined to say that the pandemic was an act of nature, or, or you might better say an act of God. At the risk of sounding like I'm making a political point, I'm not. I, I just want to illustrate the theological point. The gospel didn't only spread outward from the apostles in Jerusalem. It also spread independently over here through the ministry of Paul. And this testifies to the fact that Paul received his gospel not from man, but from God himself. In God's perfect wisdom, he raised up a separate, independent source of gospel proclamation that attested to the truthfulness of that gospel. There was no ground zero for the gospel. Yes, it began in Jerusalem, but God also did something over here through Paul that shows that this gospel came from him and not from man. It was not cooked up in a lab by humans. This gospel came from God himself. 
That's the first part of Paul's defense, his independence from the apostles. Now, seeing as we don't receive independent apostolic callings anymore, it's not immediately obvious how this part of Paul's story applies to us today, right? But what I do want to draw out for us, for us today is, is the response of the church in Judea. Their response to Paul's ministry should inform the way that we respond to gospel ministries of other churches today. Verse 24 says, And they glorified God because of me. When those churches in Judea heard about Paul's transformation, they heard about Paul's gospel ministry, what did they do? They gave glory to God. They thanked the Lord. They praised God for his work of grace in and through Paul. And this is how we should respond whenever we hear that the gospel is going forward somewhere else besides here at Redeemer. Even when it has nothing to do with us. For instance, if we hear that God is blessing another church's gospel ministry with baptisms and growth, let's glorify God for what he is doing. Let's thank God that he is graciously transforming sinners and then using those sinners to keep advancing the gospel to others and bringing more unbelievers to faith in Christ. Let's celebrate this. Give him praise. You see, when we respond in this way, we are testifying to the truthfulness of the gospel. The gospel's honored when we respond this way because it demonstrates that what we're doing here is not about us. We aren't in this for our own glory. Our mission is not the success of Redeemer Church. Our mission is the glory of God and the joy of all people through the advancement of the gospel. So Redeemer, whenever we hear that God is blessing gospel ministries outside of our own ministry, let's testify to the truth of the gospel by rejoicing in what God is doing somewhere else. Let's glorify God because of what we hear. Now back to Paul's defense. He's established his independence from the apostles, and now he moves to a second stage of his argument, which just, each, each stage here just is like three ropes that are stranded together to make his argument strong and, and valid. So, so here we see from his independence of the, from the apostles, now we see Paul's unity with the apostles. Paul's unity with the apostles. We're going to look at chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Again, Paul's telling a story here. Let's try to understand the story he's telling. For over 10 years, Paul had carried on an independent gospel ministry among the Gentiles while the apostles were in Jerusalem ministering to Jewish believers in Judea. But Paul says in verse 2 that he received a revelation from God, instruction from God to go to Jerusalem. 
Now, we don't know the content of this revelation, but we do know the reason for it, as Paul tells his story. Here's what we understand. Back in Jerusalem, a group of people that Paul refers to in verse 4 as false brothers were threatening the integrity of the gospel. These people were claiming to be followers of Christ, but they were actually promoting a false gospel. Well, what what was it about their gospel that made it false? Paul says in verse 4, they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. So whenever Paul mentions freedom and slavery in Galatians, he's referring to freedom from the law or slavery to the law. And so when he uses these terms, this means that these false brothers were probably from a group we now know as the Judaizers. These were Jewish Christians, professing Jewish Christians, who while confessing Jesus to be the Messiah, they also insisted that believers were still required to keep Old Testament law to be saved. When Judaism, the primary way that you demonstrated that you were coming under the law was to receive the sign of circumcision. Receiving circumcision was the entry point into a life of law-keeping. And so these false brothers were adding law-keeping to the gospel. And they were insisting that Gentile believers be circumcised in order to signal their commitment to keeping the law. They said this must happen for them to be saved. Well, this was the problem that led Paul back to Jerusalem. He brought Barnabas, who was Jewish, and he brought Titus, who was a Gentile, And in verse 2 he says, I set before the apostles the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So by that, Paul doesn't mean to say he was doubting his own preaching of the gospel. He's already established that he received the gospel straight from Jesus. If anyone distorted it, they're under God's curse. So Paul's not worried about his gospel proclamation. What concerned Paul was if the original apostles would buckle under the pressure of these false brothers and listen to them. What concerned Paul is if they would stay faithful to the true gospel, or if they would add law-keeping to the gospel. If that were to happen, Paul's entire ministry to the Gentiles would be seriously threatened. If the other apostles wavered in this gospel, his whole ministry could prove to be in vain. And so he goes wanting to see if they can find unity in the gospel. And the good news is that that's exactly what happened. Paul tells us first in verse 3, even though Titus was a Gentile, the apostles did not require him to be circumcised. See, they understood that the Gentiles were saved by faith alone and that no further work was required to be part of God's people. Well, then Paul says in verse 6 that the apostles added nothing to me. In other words, Paul laid out the gospel for them and they said, that's the same gospel we preach. It's not missing a thing. We have nothing to add. You, You got it exactly right, Paul. And then in verse 9, Paul says that because they perceived the grace that God had given to Paul to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, the apostles gave the right hand of fellowship to them. Now that right hand of fellowship is not a preaching license, it's not ordination, it's simply an expression of partnership in the gospel. When false brothers threatened the integrity of the gospel in Jerusalem, Paul and the apostles were completely unified. And again, Paul says this to show that this unity testifies to the truth of his gospel to the Galatian churches. It's wrong to say that he received it from them and then distorted it because he didn't receive it from them. He received it from God and then they agreed with him in it. And so he's building a case that shows my gospel is the true gospel. Now as we think about how this applies to our relationships today, here's what we can say. 
Just as Paul's unity with the apostles testified to the truthfulness of the gospel, so also our unity with each other testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel too. Jesus prayed exactly for this in John 17. I pray that they may be one so that the world may know that you sent me. Our unity testifies to the fact that the Father sent the Son into the world. But we need to think carefully about what this unity looks like. Even just recently, I was reading a book about Roman Catholicism and the gospel and the Reformation. And, and wouldn't it be better if we were just all one church, right? I mean, that would be a better testimony to the world. Well, one principle this passage shows us is that the only unity worth having is gospel unity. The only unity worth having is gospel unity. Paul's primary agenda in going to Jerusalem was not unity. That was not his primary agenda. His primary agenda was to defend the gospel. He didn't go to the the apostles and get the Judaizers in a room and say, guys, let's just find a way to be unified. Let's find the lowest common denominator. Jesus is Lord. Okay, let's just say that's the gospel. No, he set the gospel forward and made sure that they had actual deep gospel unity. Well, of course, this left the false brothers on the outside looking in, didn't it? They didn't get to share in that unity. But here's the truth. If they would have sacrificed the gospel for the sake of unifying with the false brothers, then whatever surface unity they had would have led to eternal condemnation. Even more important than unity is the gospel itself. True unity is only unity in the gospel. At the same time, true unity must go beyond doctrine. Look at verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now the background to that is that the churches in Jerusalem struggled materially through famine, through persecution. So as Paul took the gospel to the Gentiles away from Jerusalem, the apostles said, don't forget the suffering of the saints in Jerusalem. We know from Paul's letters that he made it his personal mission to collect an offering from the Gentile churches to bring back to the church in Jerusalem. And what we need to see here is that gospel unity is not just doctrinal unity. It's unity that's marked by tangible, sacrificial love. It's a unity that's marked by true care for one another. It's a unity that is marked by remembering each other's sufferings, seeking to meet one another's needs. This is the kind of unity Paul had with the apostles, and this is the kind of unity that we must have to testify to the truthfulness of the gospel today. Unity in gospel doctrine that expresses itself through unity in gospel love. That's the kind of unity we're called to. Unity in gospel doctrine that expresses itself through unity in gospel love. Now, an extended argument. So before we move to the third part of Paul's defense, let's just review what we've covered so far. In response to the claim that Paul received the gospel from the apostles, he demonstrated his independence from them. He said, I received the gospel from Jesus himself. I preached it for over 10 years apart from any extended contact with the Jerusalem church. Well, in response to the claim that he changed the gospel the apostles preached, Paul has demonstrated his unity with them. When it was threatened by false teachers, the apostles agreed with Paul's gospel, and he gave, they gave him the right hand of fellowship. So now we come to the third final strand of his defense of his gospel, Paul's authority over the apostles. Paul's authority over the apostles. They might have noticed in the previous verses that the way Paul refers to the apostles in Jerusalem is somewhat surprising. You might even say it's somewhat condescending. In verse 2, he calls them those who seemed influential. He says it again in verse 6, those who seemed influential. Verse 9, those who seemed to be pillars. 
or those who seem to have authority, those who seem to be significant. What's going on here? On the surface, it seems like Paul's undermining the authority of the apostles. Why would he talk like this to the Galatians? Well, you understand, it's because the false teachers were likely exalting the original apostles at Paul's expense. You see, again, they were seeking to convince the Galatians that their gospel was true, and in doing that, they probably were saying, we're preaching the same gospel that the apostles preach. Paul's changed it. We're the, we're the ones that represent the apostles. And, and they probably said, you know, the apostles in Jerusalem, they spent three years with Jesus. Where was Paul that time, during that time? They were there at the empty tomb. They were there at the ascension. What was Paul doing? The apostles in Jerusalem received the Spirit at Pentecost. Can Paul say that? Right? So they were, they, were, they were undermining Paul by exalting the apostles. And because of that dynamic, Paul refers to those apostles as those who seemed influential. He wants them to understand the only authority that actually matters is the authority of the gospel itself. It's not about who's the authority from a human perspective. The, the gospel is the authority that matters. And this brings us to 11 through 14, where Paul reinforces this by showing that he himself had exercised the authority of the gospel over the leader of the apostles. Look at verses 11 through 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here's what's going on. Paul was with Peter at the church in Antioch, and, and this was a mixed congregation of Jewish and Gentile believers. Well, Judaism taught that eating with Gentiles would make someone unclean. But at this point, Peter had already received Jesus' instruction that those food laws no longer applied to the church. Remember in Acts that Peter received the vision from Jesus uh, of all these unclean animals. He said, rise and eat. And Peter eventually came to realize this, this, is, this is true. And so therefore, when Peter came to visit Paul in Antioch, he sat down with the Gentiles and he probably enjoyed a hearty breakfast with a plate full of bacon. But then some other visitors came. These were Jewish believers sent from the Apostle James in Jerusalem. When they came, Paul noticed that Peter had left his bacon on the table and he went to sit down at a separate table with the Jewish believers. And Peter is so influential, of course, as an apostle that pretty soon all the other Jewish believers that were enjoying their bacon started doing the same. Even Barnabas left his bacon. <laughs> now imagine the scene as if it were one of our fellowship meals. And on one side of the room, you have all the Jews. On the other side, you have all the Gentiles. And there's a separation that has happened. Well, why did Peter do this? Paul says in verse 12, he was fearing the circumcision party. That is, he was fearing those who insisted that believers are required to keep the law. He was fearing what they would think of him. He was fearing how they'd respond to him. He was fearing the loss of his influence back home. Even though he knew the truth that believers are not under law, he didn't act according to it for fear of man. And Paul says in verse 13, their actions were not in step with the truth of the gospel. Well, what could anybody do about it, right? I mean, this is an apostle. This is Peter. He's 
the one that Jesus said, you are the rock on which I'll build my church. This is the one who stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached the gospel to the crowds. Peter was the head honcho. No one could correct Peter. Well, Paul could, and Paul did. Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I mean, just imagine the scene. Apostle versus apostle, right? Standing in front of the church, and, and Paul calls Peter out. He says, you were just over here eating bacon before they came, and now you're over there. You want to force them to live like Jews. How can you do that? He called Peter out. What was it that gave Paul the authority to publicly rebuke Peter for his actions? Was this some changing of the guard, and now Paul's the true leader of the church and not Peter? No, no, not, that's not what's happening. Paul's authority was rooted in Paul's gospel which is the gospel that he received from Jesus and the same gospel that the apostles affirmed. So when Peter's actions undermined that gospel, Paul corrected him by the authority of that gospel. And here's why Paul shares all this with the Galatians, not to trumpet his own authority, but to trumpet the authority of the gospel he preached. The fact that he could correct the apostle Peter, of all people, by the authority of his gospel testifies to the truthfulness of that gospel. What this means for us today, church, is that we can't stop merely at being a church that affirms gospel doctrine. We can't just affirm the truth of the gospel. We need to live under the authority of the gospel. If the gospel is true, then the gospel is authoritative. If the gospel is true, then the gospel must rule over us. If the gospel is true, then we must submit to it in every aspect of our lives. I praise God that here at Redeemer we have unity in the gospel. But the reality is that each one of us is prone to live in ways that undermine the truth of the gospel. If the Apostle Peter could stray like this, then any one of us can stray. It's not really a matter of if, it's when do we walk out of step with the gospel. At some point, your conduct will undermine the gospel. At some point, my conduct will undermine the gospel. And when that happens, from our newest members to our longest tenured elders, each one of us needs to be ready to call each other back by the authority of the gospel. This is why our membership covenant includes the statement, I commit to give and receive godly counsel and correction. If the gospel is true, then it is our authority, and by that authority, we must correct each other when we stray. If we don't do this, we might affirm the gospel with our words, but the gospel itself will be undermined by our actions. But listen, church, a church that submits to the authority of the gospel is a church that testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel. Here's the wonderful thing about all this. The wonderful thing about this ministry of gospel authority and gospel correction Whenever we call each other back by the authority of the gospel, we are also calling each other back to the grace of the gospel. Listen, when we say to each other, you aren't living in step with the gospel, we also must say to each other, the gospel is our only hope. We don't have the conversation between Paul and Peter, but we can know that Paul didn't say, Peter, you better get your act together because if if you don't, we're, we're saved by works and not by faith, you know. No, Paul would have said, Peter, come back to the grace of him who called you. Come back in step 
with the hope of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God's grace for sinners. It's the message that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for our sins on the cross so that we can receive forgiveness. It's the proclamation of deliverance from sin for all who repent and believe. And it's to this gospel that we must always call each other back to. I want to ask this morning, have you been living out of step with the gospel? Has your conduct been undermining the truth of the gospel? Maybe you've been undermining the gospel through your words. Have you been gossiping about other people? Have you been slandering behind someone's back? Have you been lying to protect yourself? These things are out of step with the gospel. Maybe you've been walking out of step with the gospel in your marriage, in your family. Have you been failing to love your wife as Christ loves the church? Have you been failing to submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ? Have you been unfaithful to raise your children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord? These things are undermining the gospel. Maybe you've been straying from the gospel in your desires. You've been given into the temptation to lust with your eyes. You've been feeding your flesh's desire for comfort and ease. You've been spending your money on yourself instead of being generous and sacrificial with it. These things undermine the gospel. Maybe you've been out of step through your neglect of Christian obedience. You've neglected love for the church. You've neglected sharing the gospel with others. You've neglected prayer. All these things undermine the gospel. And by the authority of the gospel, God through his word calls you this morning, church, to come back to the grace of the gospel. God doesn't call you to fix yourself. God doesn't call you to make yourself better. God doesn't call you to get your act together. God calls you back to the grace of the gospel. Come back to the good news of the cross. Come back to the God who's ready to forgive your sins. Come back to confession and repentance. Come back to faith in Jesus and come back to the joy of walking in step with the one and only gospel of grace. When we do that, we testify to each other and to the world that this gospel is truly from God.